VCY America presents Crosstalk, a nationwide call-in program discussing issues that have an effect on our families, our communities, our churches, our nation, and our world. Crosstalk, an opportunity for you to voice your concerns for biblical principles. And now live by satellite and around the world on the Internet at vcyamerica.org. Here is today's Crosstalk. And thank you for joining us on Crosstalk here on VCY America. Well, ladies and gentlemen, COVID-19 has been the agent for a massive transformation of our society and the, the freedoms and individual rights that we hold dear. If you consider all that's unfolded in the government's response to COVID, I mean, we've been told which businesses are essential, which are not. The government response has forever impacted our economy, our transportation system, our energy infrastructure, our educational institutions, our health care system, our free exercise of religion, the censorship of free speech, and a, a desire for control never before witnessed by many in our lifetime. Well, our guest today addresses these and so many other issues in a book that he's uh, written entitled Endgame, subtitled COVID and the Dark State Quest for Bio-Digital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. His name is Dennis Berent. He is a writer and the publisher of the New American Magazine and now author of this book, Endgame. Dennis, thank you for joining us here today on Crosstalk. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we have witnessed, as I said, so much over the past few years, and uh, we've seen our, our government and governments around the world actually just spring to action in a, in a very controlling way. And what's so remarkable to me is the speed at which all of this is being carried out, uh, and not only the speed, but also the disregard for individual liberty, disregard for our constitutional republic. And some may think that this is all happening as just isolated occurrences, but to others, it's like a deceitfully and well-orchestrated plan is being carried out somehow. What, what's your response to that matter? Well, I think um, that is actually the reason I wrote the book. Um, when we looked at what was taking place with the response to COVID, um, it seemed that uh, a couple of things were evident. One is that most of the same responses were being implemented everywhere around the world. That's one factor. And the second factor is that all of those responses did the polar opposite of make the situation better. They made the situation worse. And so the first question that I asked myself uh, that was really the core of getting to the writing of the book was, is this an accident? Um, is everyone involved in the response at all levels of government all around the world and in all of the non-governmental organizations that are involved, are they all very poorly informed, uh, very incompetent people, and they're making mistakes, and they're all making the same mistakes? Or is the opposite true? What they're doing is not a mistake at all, and they're implementing some agenda on the back of COVID. And so that's what the book is about. And it proposes a hypothesis and takes a look at evidence that uh, leads to the point hypothesis. Uh, once it's tested with reality, does it stand up? Mm-hmm. And uh, so hopefully the readers, when they get through to that end and they see that hypothesis, they can then weigh that question for themselves and reach a reasonable conclusion. Um, so we're going to be getting into some of the, the, the meat of the book here, but as you take a look at our economy right now, the economic course that our nation is on, is it sustainable, this, this spending that's out of control and and uh, just all that's taking place? I mean, we're seeing inflation just off the charts. Is this sustainable? No, it's 100% not sustainable. Um, I think that there isn't really anyone left uh, who looked at the situation economically and finds it to be sustainable in any way, shape, or form. You know, even running up to right before COVID, we already had drastically inflated unfunded liabilities on the books for the federal government. And even before COVID, before we had all of this helicopter money, before we had, you know, all the, you know, all the things that took place with, uh, you know, free money given out to citizens as a result of lockdowns and all of those things, we had a tremendous financial burden that it was really doubtful as to whether or not it could be dealt with. Mm-hmm. That has only, you know, accelerated to a massive extent over the last couple of years. So, you know, how do we find our way out of this economically? I, I mean, that is, uh, you know, a question that I don't think anyone has the answer to. And I think that the policies that are going to be pursued, and I think you've already seen the Federal Reserve say it, we're, we're looking at uh, putting pain on the households of American families as a result of this. I mean, so the policies that they're going to follow, they know very well what they're going to are going to cause tremendous financial difficulty for people, and they're choosing to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's right out there in the open. They've said it said it openly. I mentioned, too, the speed of all of this. I mean, the early reports from Dr. Fauci were that, you know, SARS-CoV-2, it's, it's, it would not be worse than a, a bad seasonal flu. And we went from that to just unfolded, unprecedented action by our government. Well, in, in fact, I think that was a key admission. Journal of Medicine or that he had co-written with two others, Robert Redfield being on that paper as well. And that was very and, of course, that was an accurate and it was published, like I said, in the New England Journal of Medicine for a select audience. Uh, Dennis, I'm getting some cutouts. I'm getting some cutouts. I'm getting cutouts here from your phone. I don't know if you have the phone right up to your mouthpiece or there or not. Yep. Okay. Right by my mouthpiece. That's okay. Correct. Sorry about that. Uh, well, I'll continue to, continue to try, so hopefully we have a good connection. Yeah. Um, uh, but that, that admission that uh, Anthony Fauci medicine was for a few doctors who read that journal, not for the American public. Mm-hmm. And the American public uh, was misled. They did not get the information that was in the New England. And they instead got uh, a, a story of doom and gloom and disaster and catastrophe and the need to take extreme measures. And uh, so they were never given the truth. And this was not accidental. Well, well. And one other thing here, uh, and that is we knew early on that the elderly were among the most vulnerable population. And I thought, how insane was it to deliberately place in nursing homes those who tested positive for COVID-19? I mean, many deaths happened as a result, and no one's being held accountable for this. Yeah, this is a key piece of the puzzle. And um, it has been known. I talked about unfunded liabilities. It's been known for a long time that key liabilities are liabilities that result from the need to pay for the expenses of retirees through Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And uh, going back, you know, a dozen years or more, there has been discussion in academic circles and among economists with the Federal Reserve that this was not something that we could do as, as a country. We would need to take extreme measures because we didn't have the financial ability to care for those people under those obligations. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is one of the questions that then arises. Was this a deliberate attempt to, you know, reduce the population of the elderly? And to expect that probable answer is yes, because everyone knows that if you put uh, sick people into uh, positions of proximity with a transmission to a population that is susceptible to both catching and succumbing to that very disease, you are knowingly putting those people at risk. And that is exactly what the government did in state after state after state. And you're right, no one's being held accountable for it, but this resulted in many thousands of deaths of people who did not deserve to die, did not need to die, and probably would not have died if they hadn't done exactly the opposite. And, there, and there's one normally other, do as a provider. Yeah. There's one other thing I, I want to bring up here as well, and that is there are, many are led to believe that all of the problems in the world are caused by greedy capitalists. I mean, college campuses are cranking out graduates by the tens of thousands every year with uh, a taut hatred of capitalism. They, this thinking is uh, then in being infiltrated into business, into agriculture, politics, sports, entertainment, and the list just goes on. Uh, the U.N. has been targeting capitalistic nations. So if I could have you also address this issue of capitalism, is, is that where the blame lies? No, not even close. Capitalism nothing to do with it. Um, you know, the people who died, uh, they did not die because someone was seeking to make a profit on a good. Uh, that was not at all what was taking place here. The people who died, the people who have suffered the most and who continue to suffer, let's be honest here, uh, the people who are continuing to suffer from the policies that are, are being imposed and continue to be imposed, these are done by government only. There is no business out there saying, you must take this jab, well, other than Pfizer. But Pfizer is completely in bed with the government, and government is the uh, barrel of the gun in this case that's pointed at people telling them to take the jab. Uh, so every policy has, that has failed and that has been pursued knowing it would fail has been pursued by government action. Friends, we're talking with Dennis Berendt here today. He is the author of Endgame, COVID and the Dark Side, uh, Dark State Quest, that is, for Biodigital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. And in your book, Dennis, uh, you speak of a threefold 
guiding ideological beliefs of those who are behind the levels of power. And I believe these are really foundational for our discussion today. The first is the belief that humankind collectively is fundamentally flawed, but could be improved by eliminating the flawed and perfecting the rest. Now, this seems to be part of the playbook of the eugenics movement, which uh, was greatly adored by the likes of Adolf Hitler and others. Is is that really what's going on here? Is this is this what's at play? This is exactly what's at play. So you, you mentioned eugenics, and eugenics was, uh, you know, from our point of view, we have a hard time conceptualizing this, but in the, in the early part of the 20th century, the late part of the 19th century, Eugenics was the uh, the hot button scientist scientific uh, scientism type of approach to uh, the modern world. This was what was considered to be progressively accurate thought in the world of science. You could manage the human population to bring about a better version of humanity, and so this was as this was aggressively pursued uh, in policy, both in the United States and in Great Britain, and of course uh, in, its, in its end state in Nazi Germany. We are all familiar with the that came out of that. The word eugenics kind of fell out of disfavor because of the terrible stink that it acquired as a result of the evil that was done in its name. But the idea that people could could still be perfected never did leave the thought process of the elite. And it's been transmogrified into transhumanism. Hmm. And the guy who came up with that term was um, Julian Huxley, Aldous, Aldous Huxley's brother. And uh, he was the head of UNESCO and a, and a, and a very influential scientist. And uh, he coined that term. And transhumanism, the attempt to technologically improve the human, has continued to build as a trend since that time. And we have now reached a point where this is direct government policy, where it's being advocated by uh, the highest levels of non-governmental organizations, uh, most specifically the World Economic Forum, uh, led by Klaus Schwab, mm-hmm. and uh, we're seeing uh, governments around the world, at, you know, put in place measures to bring this about. Uh, Canada, for instance, has a report that they put out a couple of years ago on medium policy toward bio digital convergence. That's not that's not a phrase I the book. I took that from the official Canadian government report on the matter, and we just had uh, an executive order signed this week by President Joe Biden on biotechnology. And uh, the way in which biotechnology can now be used to, uh, you know, build the economic foundation of the transhumanist future world order, this is all playing out in real time right now. Uh, we're moving uh, as a, in the Western world aggressively toward this transhumanist future. Yeah, indeed. And this this executive order just recently signed. I mean, this this is really a jaw dropper, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, uh, it's going to continue to funnel, which is already large amounts of federal money, into uh, research and commercialization of all levels of transhumanist biotechnology. Um, and some of this will have beneficial impact, uh, but as these technologies become more sophisticated, the hands that use them can be more deterministic in terms of whether the impact from the technology is for good or ill. And uh, more often than not, we see that the ill side of the ledger gets a lot more attention than the good side of the ledger, and that's a, that's a major concern. It's been a major concern over the last 10 years when we saw gain-of-function research in Wuhan. Um, the U.S. government, uh, you know, made a half-hearted attempt to say we wouldn't do gain-of-function research, mm. but we know that ended up being easily circumvented through the uh, EcoHealth Alliance funding that came out of the NIH and specifically continued right up to the release of COVID. Friends, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Dennis Berent is our guest here today on Crosstalk, author of the book Endgame, COVID in the Dark State Quest for Biodigital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. We're going to be getting into uh, issues like population control. We're going to be talking about uh, technology here in the next section as well. So stay with us back in a minute on Crosstalk. Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris, president of the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, were the aborigines that were found in Australia a primitive culture? No, they weren't, Chris. When the British got there, these people had a very intricate culture and language and art, and even their own brand of technology. For instance, aboriginal stone knives dating from centuries ago had serrated cutting edges. These were only invented in Western culture after the Second World War. There was nothing at all primitive about these early cultures. All people descended from Noah and his family, and they were technical enough to build a huge ship. Cultures do degenerate when they adopt pagan thought, but are not primitive in any evolutionary sense, and that's the back-to-Genesis truth. 
To learn more about creation, get our free DVD called That's a Fact. Visit our web store at icr.org slash store and use the promo code FACT at the checkout when ordering your That's a Fact DVD. You're tuned to Crosstalk on VCY America, and uh, Dennis Behrens is our guest today, a writer, publisher of the New American Magazine, and author of the newly released book, Endgame, COVID and the Dark State Quest for Biodigital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. And I do want to mention to some of our listeners today that uh, we've uh, had a recent uh, switch in satellite providers, and that is uh, causing a little bit of difficulty with uh, some issues uh, here as far as reception is concerned. And uh, so please know our engineering team is addressing that matter. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as we talk about Endgame here, uh, and Dennis, as, as I look through the book, I saw the second ideological belief that you present in your book is that there are too many people in the world, and this puts the world at risk. And I, I'd like you to comment on this, because, I mean, this seems to indicate that man's existence itself is imperiling this planet, and hence we're seeing nations around the world take action in what they call man-made global climate change, and we've got the likes of the Margaret Sangers of this world. She was founder of Planned Parenthood with a, a champion of the cause of, of uh, uh, you know, reducing population. Is, is population control really an underlying root of this diabolical tree? Yeah, it really is, and, you know, you mentioned that it's uh, seemingly a new phenomenon related to climate change, and that too many resources, this being the ideological uh, orientation of the progressive left that's currently in power, and that we need to reduce the amount of uh, uh, power that we use, the amount of energy that we use. We need to reduce the amount of fertilizer that we use because we need to protect the, uh, the climate and the ecosystem from humans. But this is not a new uh, orientation ideologically for the left. It goes back, again, over 100 years. And you mentioned Margaret Sanger. Um, she was thoroughly involved with population control measures during her, during her time, during the early part of the 20th century. And uh, this has never ceased to be a key foundational ideology of the progressive left. They have always sought to limit the number of people on the planet. And um, that's a very frightening thing, because when you seek, seek to limit the number of people on the planet, let's put this in really stark terms, saying that some people do not deserve to live. Either their birth should be stopped or, you know, in a more bloodier sense, some of our uh, greater totalitarian, uh, you know, despots of the world have carried out terrible genocides in yeah. the name of this kind of ideology. So it's a very dangerous and terrible ideology that that has existed now for well over 100 years and is a key part of the ideology of the progressive left. You mentioned Julian Huxley before, and you've got a quote from him on pages 34 and 35 in your book. Uh, this was a man very much. Uh, who wanted to disrupt human population growth. And, and you quote him as saying, if nothing is done to control this flood of people, mankind will drown in its own increase. Or if you prefer a very mixed metaphor, the world's economy will burst at the seams and mankind will probably or will become a planetary cancer, further concluding that science can and should be applied to reduce the rate of population growth or people production. Okay, use science for that purpose. And for all that and for all scientific advance, we need both basic research and practical application. I mean, do you believe that COVID-19, uh, the shot, is is part of this fulfillment of science being applied to reduce the rate of population growth? Well, that exactly is the question, isn't it? Yeah. And that is exactly the question that's at the core of the book. And uh, I raised the question before we knew what was happening uh, with regard to the actual outcomes of the shots, uh, the mRNA shots that are being delivered to people. But I thought the question was important to be asked and to put it in the context of this 100-year, over 100-year push by the progressive left for population control. And so it becomes the hypothesis. And the hypothesis is, is it in fact a measure of population control? And I put it in the context where that becomes a reasonable hypothesis. The next step of that is what's happening now. Does the lived experience in the wake of the mass vaccination campaign support or reject that hypothesis? And sadly, I think we're beginning to see, and not just beginning to see, we are now seeing direct evidence that that hypothesis probably is much more correct than I would like it to be. I, I would like nothing more than for my hypothesis to be, hypothesis to be disproven. I don't want that to be the case. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the experience that we're having, the evidence that's coming out, a uh, study out of Germany recently released, 
um, it's it's showing that an awful lot of people are being uh, you know hurt and killed in the wake of this vaccination campaign, and uh, it's a stunning development. And it tends to support, unfortunately, the hypothesis that uh, end game puts forward. Uh, let's bring John D. Rockefeller III into the picture. W- wasn't he an advocate in targeting population growth? John D. Rockefeller III's entire career was wrapped around population control. I mean, his entire life was dedicated to that purpose. Uh, not by accident, he said he was going to be career and the key part of his career. So, yeah, I mean, he was the founder in 1962, for instance, of the Population Council. In 1968, he was the co-chairman of the President's Committee on Population and Family Planning. 1969, chairman of the United Nations Association panel, which advocated a U.N. trust fund for population control be radically increased in funding. Um, So, yeah, he was extremely enthusiastic about the work of reducing population. Hmm. And uh, he thought it was something that was within grasp for the first time for real in the modern world that you could do that. In Endgame, you indicate that the Biden administration has ties to population control and eugenics. Would you just kind of pull back the curtain a bit and expose what those ties are? Well, those ties go back all the way back to uh, Rockefeller. And uh, there's been a long time, uh, if you want to call it the deep state, I know that's the the key terminology that's been used. But in the administrative state, many of the people who are involved in the administrative state have long-term ties and have long-term careers within the federal apparatus. And within NGOs, you know, there's been a swinging door type of thing, a rotating door type of thing between NGOs and federal government agencies. And these people have ties to, you know, people like John Ehrlichman. Uh, they go back to the uh, previous administrations, going all the way back, in some cases, to uh, people they had mentorships with in the Nixon administration. And you have uh, a large number of people, even Henry Kissinger, who continues to be an active uh public intellectual, uh, who have been directly involved in population control efforts, official population control efforts of the U.S. government. Uh, so there's nothing new under the sun here. Yeah. And this trend, uh, because it's part of the deep administrative state, is not something that is uh, easily washed out and watered out of the federal apparatus. It's a key part of the federal apparatus, and it has a, an inertia all of its own as such. You know, there's another uh, some buzzwords that are going out today, and we often will hear the terms sustainable development. Um, this is very much tied into population control, is it not? Yeah, sustainable development means something very specific, and it means that uh, there is someone, and you can call them a planner, for instance, an economic planner, uh, who should know best because of their expertise as, as to how an economy should be organized such that the development that takes place in with that economy is sustainable. And that means that that planner then must have control over the, the direction and the actions that take place within that economy. Uh, it's really a more modern justification for economic planning, such as the Soviet Union once had. Uh, that agency was called Gosplan back in the day. Um, but really what we're doing is we're saying that the planner then, who is going to be responsible for the agency, that in this case, who would be responsible for managing the sustainable development goals in a particular economy, would then have the power to determine if a particular economic activity should take place. So, for instance, uh, coal power generation. Well, you know, coal power generation might be declared politically incorrect because of the emissions that come from coal power plants, and therefore coal power generation has to be limited. Well, you know, if you put the where the rubber meets the road here, where we see this for real in lived experiences, we see that in Germany today we have had most of traditional means of power generation taken offline, including coal and nuclear. In, in exchange for that, they tried to implement a so-called green energy regime of wind and solar. Well, the natural gas of the sanctions on Russia and the cutoff of Nord Stream 2 and the cutoff of other flows of natural gas that have been coming in and following Germany means that now entire swaths of German industry are going dark. And the question is whether or not even German homes will be able to be heated this winter. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a planning agency has decided to do some sanctions, which happen to align very well with the green agenda. And that means that the politically incorrect and politically non-favored uh, economic area of energy production uh, is offline. And so that works just, just fine for people who want to pursue the green agenda. But if you're a person who works in German industry and has to support a family and has to heat your home or your apartment, uh, you maybe are going to be on the uh, uh, receiving end of some very unfortunate uh, things. 
Now, that's only theoretical, but let's say you're an elderly person and you can't heat your apartment above 64 degrees or 66 degrees. Mm-hmm. You're going to be more likely under that stressful situation to acquire pneumonia, and your, uh, your elderly immune system may not be able to sufficiently uh, fend off that pneumonia, and, that pneumonia, and you're probably going to have a bad health outcome. So how many people are going to be killed because of these policies? Yeah, I yeah. think that's a, that's a reasonable question. One other thing before we get to the technology, and we've got a lot of information to unpack there, uh, we must also, I believe, reveal that the thinking behind this movement is that certain humans can attain human perfection, even immortality. They believe that. Yeah. Yeah, they do believe that. And that sounds fantastic to, to say it. Uh, but uh, it doesn't sound as fantastic when you realize the billions of dollars that are being spent on that particular agenda. Um, You know, everyone from Google, you know, one of the world's largest corporations, most influential corporations, uh, to Amazon, uh, the, you know, Jeff Bezos, um, a wide range of what we might call Western oligarchs. In other words, you know, new money billionaires, they're spending vast sums of money setting up companies to do direct research into life extension. And uh, one of the key guys who's been, you know, the intellectual power behind this in the modern era, um, uh, he works for Google. His name is Ray Kurzweil, and he has, uh, you know, dedicated most of the latter part of his career as a scientist and an inventor to advocating for technological means of immortality, of achieving immortality. Mm-hmm. And this is something he's called the singularity. It's uh, something he proposes as the point at which humankind transitions from the biological human nature that we've had up until this point to whatever comes next. And uh, he forecasts that whatever comes next is uh, technologically uh, achieved uh, immortality for whatever is, you know, left of humanity at at that point. And that really... Uh, So they they firmly believe this. They spend billions of dollars on it. So it sounds fantastic to you and me here on the regular American streets of our cities and towns doing our regular daily life, but uh, the billionaires out there pouring un money into trying to bring this to reality. Yeah, and that really propels us to the third ideological belief, and that is that new technologies are going to create new hordes of unnecessary, or should I say non-essential people. Uh, I mean, we're going to discuss various technologies at work today, but in recent years, we've seen the huge push for 5G, and in your book, you indicate that the communist government has made 5G a key component of its current and future geopolitical and economic strategy. What's the connection of 5G to all of this? Well, 5G's connection directly is the transmission of data, the rapid transmission of data from remote locations uh, to computing centers, which may not necessarily be centralized in the future, but may be a so-called on-the-edge, uh, edge, edge computing. Uh, the whole idea is to be able to move vast amounts of data quickly back and forth between computing centers. Uh, this enables a whole range of capabilities that would otherwise have been constricted by a bottleneck of transmission speed. Uh, when you can move data a lot faster, you can then process it a lot faster. Proce- processing is usually outpaced transmission of data, and so that's been the key bottleneck. Removing that bottleneck enables all kinds of new technological development. And so that's why 5G, but even more than more importantly, 6G and what comes next, is incredibly important for achieving this vision. Uh, and and for, here's an example. Um, we're, rad- we're working very rapidly to achieve uh, human-like robotic capability. And there's a robot that's out there now. You can look at called Amica. But when you have a bunch of Amicas out there working, they need to have that data access in real time to be functional. That's what 5G is all about. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to be back in just one minute on Crosstalk. And, uh, folks, we're going to develop more of this technology aspect. Dennis Barron, our guest here today, author of Endgame, COVID in the Dark State Quest for Bio-Digital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. We'll be right back. The rise of fentanyl overdose deaths is skyrocketing and has been the leading cause of death in adults ages 18 to 45. Street drugs have been laced with it, creating new lines of counterfeit pills. Fentanyl is 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. Sadly, many looking for their next high are experimenting with fentanyl and losing their life as a result. Addressing the issue from a biblical perspective is Mark Shaw, founder of the Addiction Connection. In his 33-page booklet, Fentanyl, Mark examines many topics including pain management, what God says about drugs, why people are overdosing, and hope and answers from God's perspective. 
He addresses issues of the heart which lead many to addiction. The booklet Fentanyl is available for a donation of $6 or three copies for $15. Call VCY at 1-800-729-9829. You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. Dennis Berendt is with us here today on the program. He is a writer, publisher of the New American Magazine, and author of this brand new book, Endgame, COVID and the Dark State Quest for Biodigital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. Uh, we've talked, uh, we're talking about this threefold guiding ideological belief. The first, that humankind collectively is fundamentally flawed, could be improved by eliminating the flawed and perfecting the rest. Uh, the second, dealing that there are too many people in the world and that puts the world at risk. And so therefore we are taking actions against, you know, the populations of the world and bringing down that population and look at all the things that are going on right now to attain that end. Uh, and then we're now in this third ideological belief that new technologies will create new hordes of non-essential people. And and talking about the technologies going on, uh, we've mentioned 5G and uh, so important to to speed this information along in order for uh, for computing to take place. And uh, Dennis, there is also something called quantum computing. What is the concern with quantum computing? Well, quantum computing is an order of magnitude, if achieved in, in a broad scale and commercialized, is an order of magnitude faster, and many orders of magnitude faster, than computing that we've come to know of today. And it's going to be, uh, to say revolutionary in its potential, is to really not capture even remotely how powerful it will be. Um, quantum computing probably, I don't even think as a, you know, as a, as a society, as a culture, I don't think we've really wrapped our minds around just what a change that will represent for us uh, as a society. That's, that's really going to make uh, the future of artificial intelligence, the possibility of an artificial superintelligence, uh, if it's realized in its full potential, almost unavoidable, and that's going to change everything. Wow, wow. So let's bring in this topic of surveillance. We're seeing cameras pop up in many places across the nation, and, and then you go to places like China, it's just off the charts. Surveillance is really a yeah. huge part of this, isn't it? Surveillance is a part of it, and it goes back to the part of the book that gets into whether or not people are unnecessary. And if you start to create an entire population of unnecessary people, they might tend to get a little restless, and uh, you need to keep an eye on them. And and in part, also, you also need to keep an eye on them in order to train the AI. Uh, So if you want an AI that can really understand and manage and help manage or really take over the complete management of a population, that AI needs to have complete surveillance over the entire population. And we now are building the technology. We actually have incredible technology for surveillance, uh, but it's, it's getting more sophisticated all the time. Uh, no one is going to be free of being surveilled at all times in everything that they do, uh, probably in the future in everything that they think. And certainly, you know, we have the World Economic Forum openly calling for biodigital surveillance of your your you know biological functions of your your individual yes, body. So this yes. is a really terrifying uh, you know change of pace from everything that's gone before, especially in America where we prioritized you know personal security and uh, you know defenses in our constitution against unnecessary surveillance. Yeah, I mean, we've heard the quotes from, uh, was it Yuval Noah Harari uh, talking about, yes. you know, we've been able to surveil outside the body, but we must now get under the skin. We have to uh, surveil what's going on within the body. Yes, that's abs- that's absolutely Yuval Noah Harari. And, you know, now that you brought him up, I'll mention again, he's one of, one of the uh, World Economic Forum public intellectuals who's been very open about what they're, what they're thinking is coming. And one of the things he has been very openly discussing, even in recent weeks, is that, you know, technology is going to replace people. We are not going to have people that have jobs any longer because most technology will replace people in almost all fields. And so we're going to have a lot of unnecessary people running around. And uh, he's openly speculating, well, what do we do with those people? And uh, that's a discouraging conversation because I think in the context of what the elites have spent the last century thinking about in terms of population control and reduction, uh, the conclusions are kind of starkly disturbing. Uh, Dennis, uh, we've got more that we want to break down about technology, but uh, how is it our listeners uh, today can get a, obtain a copy of your book, Endgame? Thanks for asking. I think if anyone wants to read it, uh, shopjbs.org, shopjbs.org. 
uh, that's the best place to get it for the best price. And uh, for people who otherwise uh, you know, like to shop on Amazon, if there's any listeners who fall into that category, the book is also available on Amazon. And we have it in a Kindle version, and we have it in an audiobook version, as well as a traditional paperback. Okay, again, that's shopjbs.org. And I'm looking at, at your website right now, uh, at that site, and for those who don't have Internet access, uh, you can also reach out. It looks like 1-800-JBS-USA-1. And uh, you can also uh, give a call and, and obtain it that way. You, you've got a full chapter on artificial intelligence or AI, and we often hear the use of AI is on the increase. Could you uh, clue us in what's going on? Yeah, artificial intelligence has been really for 50 years uh, and a key area of de- technological development. And it kind of went into what was called AI winter you know, in the late 1980s, throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, when not a lot of... Uh, not a lot of change in the research in AI was taking place. But then there was a couple of breakthroughs uh, in the late two, you know, 2009, 2010 period. And since that time, those breakthroughs have led to extremely rapid increases in AI capabilities, uh, such that you know, we now have concerns being raised by very, you know, very solid academic scholars saying that you know, this could now uh, you know, reach a point of geometric increase in AI capabilities such that we could actually find AIs eventually, and maybe not in the too distant future, achieving a kind of sentience uh, or a superintelligence. And at which point, uh, any kind of AI superintelligence would be far superior to uh, biological human intelligence. Hmm. Now, I'm not going to say that I actually predict that happening. I'm not uh, a person who necessarily believes that's going to happen uh, because I think there's some significant roadblocks to that. However, the most dangerous thing is not whether it happens. I think the most dangerous thing is whether people behind it believe it's going to happen because those are the beliefs that inform public policy, and those public policies can be dangerous if they're poorly informed. I mean, are they trying to build God with AI? Absolutely. Uh, a superintelligence, by definition, would be a secular god, 100%. And uh, that's one of the key concerns, uh, because a, a secular god as an AI uh, really would be able to think at a speed and at a capacity that no individual person could approach, and would then be able to take actions at, at speed and capacities that no even group of individual humans could approach. Yeah. And so we'd be at the mercy of that creation, should that ever exist. Now, and, you know, some of the... Some of the people who think that's possible, uh, a guy named uh, Professor Bostrom in the U.K. at Oxford, has written an entire book about the danger of superintelligence, and it's, it's a sobering read. Now, there are those who are saying, you know, they just shudder at this thought. I would never get engaged with AI, but those who use Siri are using AI, are, are they not? Yeah, you're using AI whenever you use Siri. You're using AI whenever you search Google. So if you run a Google search, uh, you're really training the Google AI, and Google is not primarily something that should be thought of as a search engine company or even an advertising company any longer. Uh, Google is an artificial intelligence research company, and whenever you're using, uh, whenever you're running a search on Google, you're training that AI. Uh, so you're involved in the process of bringing that AI into creation, and boy, there's been a heck of a lot of uh, AI developments lately. I mentioned Amica, the humanoid robot that's out there that's been uh, put together by a company named Engineering or Engineered Arts. Uh, Engineered Arts has recently uh, uh, put its, uh, its robot creation, which is really aimed at, you know, how do you create a robot that can use human expressions, facial expressions? Uh, how do you merge that with artificial intelligence? And they've just merged it with an artificial intelligence, one of the most powerful ones called GPT-3. So I'd encourage all of your listeners to go out to YouTube and take a look at the GPT-3-powered Amica robot, it's spelled A-M-E-C-A, and watch it interact with people, and uh, you can kind of see the state of the art where we're at, and it's, it's pretty stunning. That's A-M-E-C-A, Amica. And, uh, look for That's a- correct. Okay, Amica robot. Um, I'd like to cover one other area of technology, and that is nanotechnology, and time just does not permit us to go into great detail, but you present that nanotechnology uh, in your book, and on page 203, you indicate that in the future, nanotechnologies are both a boon and a danger to mankind. Explain that. Yeah, uh, we see that right now with regard to the COVID vaccinations, for instance. Nanotechnology is important for the COVID vaccinations. We have uh, the mRNA snippet is encapsulated and it's nano-encapsulated uh, in order to allow that 
particular mRNA to be both uh, you know, protected within the biological uh, environment in which it's injected, as well as to transition across the cell membrane. But there's a whole host of even much more sophisticated nanotechnologies that are in the laboratory, including nanotechnologies that can swim through biological substrates. Uh, meaning that uh, these nanotechnologies could be used to target all kinds of potential areas within uh, biological uh, biological materials. So that could be a boon. So, for instance, for cancer targeting, if you wanted to treat uh, aggressive cancers with a very targeted approach, this could be one way in which that could really be beneficial, this technology. On the other hand, if you wanted to create something that would cause cancer, this would be one way to deliver a very, you know, powerful cancer-generating substance mm. to someone, for instance, you'd like to get rid of. Um, you, you can think of all kinds of ways in which you can use nanotechnology to deliver terrible things. Uh, you've all know Harari when he was talking about how you might use, how we might want to have increased surveillance under the skin. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you do that? You do that through nanotechnology. And so the capabilities to bring this into reality, commercialized, are in the labs right now. Uh, there's research going on. And uh, commercialization could be a decade or less away in in in, the, in many of these areas. And folks, this is amazing because just as Harari uh, talks about hacking a, a computer, believes we should be able to hack into a human body as well. Our phone number to crosstalk today: eight hundred seven three three nine eight two nine eight hundred seven three three nine eight two nine. So, Dennis, as we go back to where we started in our interview on COVID nineteen. What does this pandemic reveal about the direction of, of the future? Well, what this pandemic reveals is that uh, there is a very organized push to bring into being uh, a new transhumanist reality that uh, replaces the reality that we've all lived in since the beginning of the human species. Uh, since, ever, since humans walked the earth, we've, we've lived kind of the way we always have, uh, with you know some changes here or there, but we've always had families, we've always thought to make our families more successful. We've always thought to protect our kids. We've always worked hard for these things. Uh, this goes right all the way back to whether it was hunters and gatherers, right up to, uh, you know, everyone going to work today. Why are we doing it? For the same reasons we always have. In a transhumanist future where this is replaced, uh, this all goes out the window, and we're talking about a complete change in the way people live, or even if people live. Um, when you talk about transhumanism, you're talking about the transition from uh, what has been humans to what comes after humanity. And the transhumanists are very open when, when they talk about this. They talk about post-humanity. Well, post-humanity implies that there will no longer be a humanity. Mm -hmm. Whatever comes next isn't wow. going to be human, and that's something we need to grapple with. Wow. That's a scary outcome. And one final thing, and then we've got a break, and we'll get to calls then. All of this is just coming down the track like a freight train. Is there anything people can do or just sit back and wring our hands and say, oh, my? Yeah, well, uh, wringing your hands and saying, oh, my, is actually a starting point because the first thing that has to be done is people need to be aware of the technological and policy changes that are coming at them. And if they're not aware with, that those are out there, they can't engage with them. And then they're just passive recipients of whatever is put on them. Uh, instead, you need to become aware. So hopefully people will read Endgame. There's other books people should read. I think the Nick Bostrom book from Oxford uh, would be one that people should read. But become aware of what's happening, and then you can engage with those ideas at the areas where we still have in, an interface with policy, and that is with our local uh, local, politician, local politicians, uh, our, our representatives in Congress, and that's really important because where does a lot of the funding, almost all the funding for this, comes from federal government sources? Wow. We, can we can impact that. And things like the executive order of recent does not help things at all. Uh, uh, friends, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back to your phone calls. Dennis Barrent is with us today. Again, the book is Endgame, available at shopjbs.org. Back in a minute here on Crosstalk. For the Worldview Report, I'm Brandon House. Our website is worldviewreport.com. Many remember that the lockstep document was written by the Rockefellers in 2010, the Rockefeller Foundation, 2010. And what did it talk about? A pandemic. And when you read their scenario, it sounded just like the coronavirus and 2020. So whenever these groups do tabletop exercises, we might want to pay attention. And now there's been uncovered another. It was a tabletop exercise for food crisis, a food crisis, food shortage. And that was held in 2015. Well, my friends, 
Look at where we're at. One of the people involved in the tabletop exercise was John Podesta, tied directly to Hillary Clinton. The Biden regime has just brought John Podesta back into the White House, one of the men that ran the tabletop exercise in 2015 for food shortages. Let's be prepared. I'm Brandon House. Friends, we have scratched the surface of what is an endgame, but uh, it is available for you to go into depth and to detail uh, uh, with a the book there. Uh, they do have it on their site, uh, shopjbs.org. You can reach out to them at 1-800-JBS-USA-1. And uh, taking your calls here today on Crosstalk, uh, Dennis Berendt, the author of the book, is with us here today. And uh, we're going to begin with uh, Kevin calling in from Dry Ridge, Kentucky. Kevin, you're on the air. Yes, I want to thank you both for the topic today. But also, I'm very concerned that there's many Christians today um, that are just kind of apathetic about the whole thing, Mm -hmm. um, and they don't even want to see reality. And I think it all points to Satan being the great deceiver. Yeah. Um, how can we actually get and make sure that our government's voting systems are fixed in order to call our representatives to fix that stuff? And along with, I think it all comes back to Scripture, we must, as Christians, pray and turn from our wicked ways and yeah. seek His face so that He'll hear from heaven and heal this land. Amen. Amen. Thank you, and I'll listen to your comments. Great. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, this whole voting aspect, uh, your, your comment on that, Dennis. Well, it starts again at the local level. So voting takes place at the local level. And so anyone involved with or who, is, who wants to involve themselves with making sure we have a good quality voting system needs to engage with that at the local level, become you know, in, involved with your precincts, you know, get involved as a volunteer, yeah. learn what's taking place, and engage with that at your local level. Because it, only if we do that all across the country do we secure that system? It makes a difference and, uh, who you. Absolutely it's absolutely necessary. It makes a difference who you vote for as, as your county clerk, who you vote for as your state uh, secre- secretary of state, and on and that chain goes. Now, keep in mind, we did programs earlier this year about this HR one that they tried to federalize elections. What a nightmare that would be! So, uh, uh, getting engaged in that local level so very important. Barry in Tennessee, you're on the air. Yes, Jim. Uh, you know, just what the gentleman is saying. You know, the tools. The tools are already being prepared and being in place mm-hmm. control and for the tribulation they're doing like with the food with everything i mean i mean we are really the only thing that can stop all this that's going on is a real re- reformation move of the holy spirit of mm-hmm. people getting back and repenting the church it has to start in the church yep. and we need to get back to, to the, the, the basics of where we were and where we've fallen from and uh you know if this continues to go on, you know, people think that, you know, there's just going to be the rapture. They're going to be taken out so quick. We might have to go through more than what we might want to go mm-hmm. through. But the Bible speaks and says that those that have kept his patience, those that are truly born again, will be kept from that hour of temptation. And that temptation is to take that mark. And we, uh, anybody that's playing around is going to be left behind. Barry, thank you for your comments on this issue. And I know it's 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 one of those things that uh, you talk about here, Dennis. Is you know we got to get serious about what's going on uh, before us right now, and we have to understand what's taking place. We really do, and we need to actually bring that message to the churches. Mm-hmm. Historically, the churches in America have been foundational to uh, helping us move to a system of freedom in our republic. If you go back to the founding era, much of that came from the churches of the founding era. Mm-hmm. They were instrumental. And that can still be the case today and needs to be the case today. So this message needs to get to them, too. Our faith leaders are really important. Let's go to Merle in Tennessee. Merle, you're on the air. Yeah, i got two quick questions for Dennis. Does he think the casual approach that was taken after the uh, virus was released, did he think that was on purpose to let it get embedded and uh, spread in the population so that uh, once it was out there and, and spreading, that the fear would have everybody get the shot? Also, does he think the 5G in about everybody's neighborhood now will interact with the shot as far as the nanoparticles? Okay. Both good questions. Yes, I think it was uh, allowed to circulate. I think that uh, absolutely, 100%. You know, you can't have a reaction to a problem unless you let the problem percolate and become a problem first. So I, I, do, think, I do think that that's probably likely. Uh, where do I think 5G lands with regard to the vaccines currently? 
Um, my study of this is that the technology that would be enabled by 5G is still in the lab. So I think we're at the, we're at the trial balloon stage um, where we're implementing the possibility that these things can be done. And now that they've been proven, if you look at this as a giant test on the entire world, uh, the test has been to see whether or not this could be foisted on the people. The answer is yes. Uh, they were successfully able to foist this on the people. Now the technology, which is in the labs, you know, that can be commercialized in the next few years, and then all bets are off. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for the call here today. Uh, let's see. Uh, Susan is next, calling in from Clintonville, Wisconsin. You're on the air. Hi. I just have a really quick question that piggybacks the last guy. My husband thinks that 5G is nothing to be afraid of and that it's just a higher you know, faster way to get things done on your computer. Um, and an unrelated question, the Biden uh, war on cancer, for lack of a better term, I can't remember what it was called, could that um, swimmy, I, I was walking up from the barn so I didn't get the terminology, could that be maybe a new treatment that is sneakily putting something else in your body that you don't really want? Okay, thank you. Dennis. Great questions. Um, on 5G, there is, you know, in any kind of RF radiation situation, there, there are exposure limits. If you go and take a look at a cell phone tower, you'll see a sign uh, warning of exposure limits on those cell phone towers. So as long as you're under those general exposure limit guidelines, and I say in general because every person is different as an individual, and your reaction to any particular exposure circumstance may be different than some other person's. And I'm talking now exposure to anything. You know, it could be any chemical or RF, your level of personal exposure tolerance and whether or not you're sensitized is unique to you. Uh, but in general, there are exposure limits to be aware of. So 100%, that's a, that's a reality. And, and um, before we get to cancer, though, and technology can be used for good, you know, the, the faster communications, but can be used for ill as well. Absolutely. And that's a key point when it comes to the cancer technology. So mRNA technology uh, could have been an important uh, tool in fighting cancer and cancer treatments. And just think what's happened with that now. I mean, who's going to trust mRNA technology now? So the possibility of using mRNA technology for good uh, because it's been used for evil has really now been diminished. Uh, so the manipulation of science uh, to bad ends and the political, politicalization of science has been terrible from the point of view of outcomes in the positive. And Science is being politicized in order to weaponize it against the population, as opposed to science being used as it always was, a tool of investigating the natural world and expanding our understanding. Uh, as a politicalization of the sciences goes forward, that traditional role of the sciences goes out the window, and the benefits that come from that, which are astonishing, also go out the window. And that's something we need to be very much on guard against. It's a terrible outcome. Thank you for the call. We have just plumb run out, run out of time here on the program today. Dennis Barrent, our guest. And again, the book's available at shopjbs.org. Dennis, thank you so much for being with us today and exposing what's going on. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Friends, remember, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. Listening to Crosstalk via satellite and the Internet from BCY America. Views expressed may or may not be those of this station. For a CD of today's program, send a donation of $6 or more to VCY Take Ministry, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208. Or download by RSS or podcast from CrosstalkAmerica.com. And join us again for Crosstalk. Crosstalk.